0: I'm going to begin this sermon with a terrible introduction. Apart from getting your attention, the rest of it's not going to be very good, and I would give myself a very low grade were I to be watching this sermon because what I'm going to begin with is nothing but a very high overview of several statements made in the wisdom literature about the importance of wisdom. This isn't going to be clever or well-crafted, but it is going to be something I hope is helpful for you. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to begin with to Proverbs chapter 22. For whatever reason, in the wisdom of the people who edited the manuscripts, they chose to not put a new chapter beginning at the part that talks about wisdom, but rather to begin it halfway through. So, in Proverbs chapter 22, beginning in verse 17, uh, you have 30 words to wise people. Not people who are already wise, but people who want to become wise. And beginning in Proverbs 22, verse 17, there are 30 statements that are made, some of them longer, some of them shorter. They are meant to be the words of wisdom distributed to those who are seeking to be wise. In fact, there are 30 given. You see in verse 20, I have, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? If there's anything that would be helpful for us as Christians, it is to function in a world when, that when people ask us questions, we can actually give them wise answers instead of glib, repetitious, shallow, party lines that people are so tired of hearing and that we don't even fully understand ourselves. Wouldn't it be amazing if every one of us were so steeped in God's truth that we were actually able to, in the theater of ideas, interact with people on an intelligent level? That we were able to explain to them Not only what we believe, but even what they believe, and we could explain it to them in a way that shows that we respect them, that we understand them, and that we actually know their position perhaps better than they do. Well, there's only one way for you to attain that kind of wisdom and that kind of usefulness in society and the church, and that is to allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly, meaning that it goes in and it produces fruit. This entire series we have called True Religion, and we have looked at the real fruitfulness of true religion in the terms of what it produces, and today will be the fruit of wisdom. We'll be looking at that from James chapter 3, 1 to 18. Now, wisdom, as you know, is perhaps the most important thing for you to have. We've tried to highlight that in several examples throughout many of the other sermons that have been preached in this series. Everything comes back to wisdom— Dave mentioned that earlier today when he was giving us his exhortation. The book of James is about wisdom. We are told by James to ask God for wisdom, wisdom to handle the temptations that come our way. And in this particular section, one of the biggest challenges we face is how to control our tongue. And James says, in the end, the only way to do that is through wisdom. But if I were to back out for a little bit and show you the entire timeline, start to finish, and use Proverbs as my example, it would go something like this. Look down at verse 22. I'm going to go through these quickly, all 30 of them, okay? I encourage you to go back and read them in more detail yourselves this week. But to begin with, James, um, Proverbs 22, beginning in verse 22. One, do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for Yahweh will plead their cause and rob the life of those who rob them. Two, make no friendship with a man given to anger. Three, be not one of those who give pledges or puts up security for debts. Next, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do not see a man, or do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Next, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Next, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Next, do not eat, verse 6 of 23, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Verse 10 Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the field of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong he will plead their cause against you. Verse 12 Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. 13 Do not withhold discipline from a child if you strike him with a rod he will not die. Verse 15 My son if your heart is wise my heart too will be glad. Verse 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of Yahweh all the day. Verse 19, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Verse 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Verse 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Verse 29, Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, and those who go to try mixed wine? 24-1, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Verse 3, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Verse 6 For by wise guidance you can wage your war. In an abundance of counselors there is victory. Verse 7 Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. Verse 8 Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. Verse 10 If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Verse 11, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Verse 13, my son, eat honey for it is good and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Verse 15, lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Verse 19, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Verse 21, my son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster from them will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that will come? from them both. Now I acknowledge it's a very quick overview, but you can see within that not only is wisdom something that is to be attained over time and attention given to the Word of God and the truths that are contained there, but how often is wisdom directly aligned to what you say? One of the things that I'm so grateful for is the way that almost every morning is our children were growing up, even after I had left or been preoccupied with something else, Catherine would take them through the Proverbs every day and remind them of the truths of Scripture and send them on their way with that truth implanted in their minds and in their hearts and praying that through it they would be able to remember that, rehearse it, and by it become wise, able to navigate in a very difficult world. James has the same consideration here as he thinks about the believers that he's writing to. And I would have the same concern for you as a church. In fact, if there's one thing that we could do together that would transform and even further exemplify what a healthy church is to look like is if we were committed by the power of the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of wisdom that is seen in the way that we control our tongues. As a matter of fact, self-control over thoughts and words is the essence of wisdom. Self-control over your thoughts and your words are the very essence of wisdom. And so what we're going to see this morning is maturity modeled in three ways. Careful teaching, wise thinking, and humble living. If you have your bulletin with you, you can open it up and look at that outline. Careful teaching, wise thinking, and humble living. Now, the first of these three comes to us at the beginning of James chapter 3, and the last one will be at the end. What I'd like to do is read each section for you as we tackle it. The first one is careful teaching. Look down, if you will, at James chapter 3, verses 1 through the first half of verse 5. This is God's word. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and they're driven by such strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The first way in which maturity, the first way in which the fruit of wisdom is seen is in your careful teaching." Now, it is not uncharacteristic of James to change subjects rather quickly. Uh, James is the kind of author who doesn't necessarily feel as if he's obliged to keep one thought and carry it all the way through the letter. He jumps on to different subjects and covers them quickly in a rapid fire succession. And so, after dealing with the issues we talked about last week in terms of faith and what that looks like and playing out in the good works that we do by nature of being children of God, he now quickly changes to another subject, namely, what about those who speak? What about those who teach? Uh, What about those who take these truths contained in the letter and accept the enormous responsibility of trying to communicate that clearly and effectively to other believers? the essence of this is careful teaching. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, and you could say, and sisters as well. This is to the whole church. For you know something. Now, once again, this is an English word that could be translated one of two ways. It refers to a Greek word, specifically the one that says to know this objectively. There's another Greek word that means to know something experientially. But in this case, the author is saying, you know this, you know better. It's not unlike when you come across your child doing something that you've told them several times before not to do. That's the very thought in your mind. You say to them, you know better. And this is what the author is saying to us. You know that we will receive the greater judgment. He puts himself in the category of we, in the category of the teacher, And by greater judgment, he does not say that somehow God's standard for teachers is higher. Please let me say that again in case you missed it. He is not saying that God's standard for teachers is higher. I've often heard it said that you shouldn't become a teacher, a preacher, a pastor, an elder, a leader, because there's a higher standard. That is wrong. The standard is the same for all people. Ultimately, the standard is perfection for all of us. Anyone want to sign up for that? It's called trying to obtain your salvation through good works. The very same standard of holiness is applied to everybody. And the only way that we are able to attain that standard of holiness is to have it attained for us on our behalf by somebody else, namely Jesus Christ, through what theologians call His act of obedience. When we are born again, that act of obedience is applied to us. We are clothed in it. We will always stand before the Lord one day as a Christian, fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ, perfectly meeting the eternal holy standard. I want you to be encouraged by that this morning. May your salvation be secure, not in how well you're doing or how well you did this week, but because of how perfect Christ was. So let's abandon this notion that somehow there is a higher and lower standard for any Christian. There's only one standard, his standard, perfect standard, met by him, and if you're in Christ, you've met it already. <laughs> Amen? Okay, we can close in prayer. I mean, really, I, always, it's, I have the same sermon every week, so as long as we've got that settled, we can move on now to the rest. But what is he talking about? Well, it's different. He says there will be a stricter judgment from Crino. There will be a stricter way in which you are evaluated. There will be a different consequence, as it were. Let me give you an illustration that might make sense for you. If you were to be preoccupied with texting on your phone when you should have been driving, you could get pulled over by a police officer and you would be issued a citation for that violation. Uh, this would come with a fine, maybe a big fine if you're a repeat offender. But if you were to have a commercial driver's license and you were driving a commercial vehicle and you were pulled over for texting, you would have a much higher consequence. Not only would you be issued a citation in the thousands of dollars, but you could very well lose your license and lose your career. That's the kind of difference that James is talking about. It's not that one is held to a higher standard. Neither are allowed to commit that violation while driving. The difference is that there is a stricter judgment for the person driving the 18-wheeler than the person driving the Ford Focus. Now, when—and I wasn't—I had nothing against Ford Focuses, by the way. See, people think I planned these. I don't know. I just think the first thing that came to my mind— The author is saying to us, the teacher is the one who is going to be more strictly judged. Why? Because it is the teacher who has been entrusted with the responsibility of teaching this word to the people. Imagine the consequences of being misled. Imagine the consequences of being a false teacher. Why is almost every New Testament epistle negative? Why is almost every New Testament epistle corrective? Why does almost every New Testament epistle at some point in it zero in on problems that were in the church? It's because almost every one of them had some faction of false teaching. And almost every aspect of false teaching has to do with men and sometimes women putting themselves above the authority of God. Now, we have to be extraordinarily cautious when we submit ourselves to teachers, and that's exactly what the author is saying. And the reason why it is so particularly precarious for teachers is that teachers by nature have to talk. And anyone who talks puts themselves in a position where there could be consequences. Consequences for what they've said, consequences for what they've taught, and they can mislead people. Now, verse 2, 4, and this is a conclusion, kind of conjunction, for, in conclusion, we all stumble in many ways. Why is it that not many of you should be teachers? Because we all stumble in many ways. All of your teachers are failed, flawed teachers, or so your pastors, your elders, everybody in a position of authority around you. But then he goes on to describe the most common point of failure, and that is, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a complete man. I like that translation better. A complete man. The word perfect in the other translation doesn't quite get there. We've used this word before in our study of James. It's the word complete, to bring something to completion, fully mature, fully ready. And the person who can control their tongue is a fully mature person. If you're mature enough to control what comes out of your mouth, you are able to bridle and control his whole body. The person who can control their tongue can control their body, everything. And now he goes on to give an illustration, two as a matter of fact, one regarding horses and one regarding ships. One has to do with bits, the other with rudders. Look at what he says in verse 3. Very easy illustration to understand, even for us, though we don't have horses. I read a funny quip the other day. It said, in the old days, Rich people had cars and poor people have horses. And today, poor people have cars and rich people have horses. (laughs) That's for free. It's got nothing to do with my sermon. (laughs) I'll offer you that. If we put bits, please notice it's the word bits. A bit went into the mouth of the horse. It causes an irritation in the mouth so that when it is pulled in one direction or the other, the horse instinctively moves his head in that direction. And when the horse moves its head in one direction, the body tends to go with it. It is not a muzzle. It doesn't say muzzle the horse. You put a bit in the mouth of the horse. And when these bits go into the mouth, they will obey. It means to be persuaded. It's actually a word from which we get the word faith. They, they will do what they are told. They will move in the direction you want them to go. In fact, it says we will guide their whole bodies as well. The whole massive body of a horse horses are big, heavy, strong animals. If you've never been around a horse, go find one. Go stand up beside it. Go try to push it over. Go try to move it. I don't recommend going from behind because evidently they'll kick you and kill you, but they're big, strong animals. You don't want to get into a tug-of-war with a horse, and yet this tiny little bit that's put in their mouths is enough for even the weakest little person to guide that big strong heavy horse the whole body goes with it in another illustration he talks about ships and he talks about great ships big ships and not only big ships but a big ship in a bad storm I mean if there are any forces that are powerful it is a large ship being tossed around in a big storm and he says this little rudder it's all it takes just one person holding that rudder, just one person holding the wheel connected to it can guide the entire ship. Likewise with the mouth. Verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Notice what he says. It's not the tongue you bridle. Can we just be clear about that for a moment? The purpose of James chapter 3 is not to convince Christians to stop speaking because we'll see in a moment you can do just as much damage from what you're thinking. He's not saying don't talk. He's not saying muzzle your mouth. He is saying understand that that little muscle behind your teeth has the capacity to completely control who you are, what you do, and how you're perceived by others. Who you are, what you do, and how you're perceived by others is completely dependent upon what you do with that tongue. It can either build someone up or tear them down, and frankly, can do the same for your reputation. And so, if you are commissioned by the local church to be the one who brings God's Word and to teach it, not only are you to be careful because of the judgment that waits for those who deal fast and loose with God's truth, but as a talker, You've got to be extraordinarily careful that you don't so undermine your credibility with the people around you that it reflects the way they respond to God's Word. Why does it matter that elders have to meet a certain character? It is not because character and capability go together. Would you all agree with that? Yes? Congregation? Do you know some people who are extraordinarily capable at what they're doing, but have no character whatsoever? Do you know people like that? Right. And do you know people that have upstanding moral character, but man, they're useless. They don't go together. But in the case of the one who is to speak that truth, they need to do it capably and they need to have character. I am utterly perplexed by this notion that some people have put around that pastors ought never to go into the ministry unless there's nothing else they can do. I heard that when I was in seminary. You know, you ought not to go into the ministry. If there's anything else you can do, you should do it. And I used to think to myself, really, so the ministry is going to be filled with men who are utterly incapable of doing anything else but this. No, I want to go into the ministry and find people in the ministry who could do almost anything else, but they're doing this because they feel like God's called them to this. Same is true with those who teach. Now, if there's one thing that's going to undermine you, it's what you say. Now, this goes, of course, for all Christians, but the focus here is on those who teach. Now, notice what he says in verse 5 that though it is small, it boasts of great things. That's a neutral statement. He's not making a judgment, he's saying it boasts of great things, it really does. Your tongue boasts of great things, in some case, in a very negative way, and in some case, says a very positive way. Like Your, your, your tongue is capable of doing both. We're going to see that a little bit later in another illustration. In in fact, you can go back into the life of Christ and you can see, for example, in John 7.46 that even the people who were listening to him who didn't follow him had to acknowledge that no one had spoken like him. No one had said the great things he had said. No one had boasted of great things the way he boasted of great things. And so a Christian who is responsible for teaching ought to be those who boast of great things. I mean, is there anything greater than what we just talked about earlier, which is that the righteousness of Christ has been given to you in exchange for your sin? That's a great thing, and we want to boast about it, don't we? Would that every person who stood up here had that as their boast. Every Sunday school teacher boasted about that. Every ministry leader boasted about that. Every teacher in our school boasted about that and really believed it. Every person involved in every parachurch organization or integrated auxiliary here in our body and happening on this campus would, would boast of that and believe it. That's a great boast. But the challenge is that there's also boasting that is just boasting in self. And that is what the teacher must be careful of. If you're going to teach, teach only what is true. Teach only what comes from His Word. I, I can't help it, but I'll tell you this I was at a series of meetings this week with some other pastors, and we were in the church building where this particular church gathers to worship, and we were looking at the pulpit, and this preacher has something very similar to what I have right in front of me. And that is a reminder every single time he steps up to that pulpit, and for me, every single time I step up to this pulpit, and right here written into a brass plaque that Catherine got from me one time, it says, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's another way of saying, John, we don't really care what you have to say. It's not about you, it's about Him. It's about that truth. And every teacher can, be, can rest assured that even what they say with their tongue will not cause them to be utterly forsaken if what they say is the words of God and the Word of God. So careful teaching. That's the first way that the fruit of wisdom is seen. Secondly, wise thinking. Look what he says in the rest of verse 5 and following. He says, how a great forest. You could say behold if you want in that translation. Behold. Look at this. A great forest, just like the great horse and the great ship. The great forest is kindled by a small fire. You see the contrast again? Something big, something small? Big horse, small bridle, big ship, small rudder, big forest, small fire. You see the principle there? He says, Behold this, under the second heading of wise thinking. Behold, this little fire can start a whole forest going. And then he says in verse 6, also the tongue is a fire, a world of injustice. That word world is great. It's the word we get cosmos from. Uh, It's a whole basic universe of injustice. It's like the entire universe working together in this massively, incomprehensibly, enormous thing that we can't even begin to fully understand the tongue does the same, but it's a universe of injustice that it can create. And the author is saying that the reason you must control it is because of its ability, and there are four things that it can do. There are four ways in which he describes this now in the second part of verse six and all the way through to the end of the verse, okay? There are four of them. Let me give them to you. I'll try to be slow and careful here with you. There's four. So if you're taking notes, it begins here. Number one. The tongue is set among our members. Now, that might seem like a benign statement, but I want you to look down at the word set. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, this would be a great place to do that. That word only appears here in the New Testament, and it's in the middle voice. What it's saying literally is, if I were to translate this, the tongue has set itself among our members. This is the first thing it's done. That tongue has usurped its role. The tongue, this little part of our bodies, the word members means parts of the body, that little tongue inside your mouth has said, I'm the boss of everybody. Any of you grow up with like that bossy kid? Your friend group would get together and there was that one like Mr. Bossy Pants who had to run everything. Why are you so bossy? When we get together, why do you always have to be the boss? Everything has to be your way. When we get together as a group, you stand out as being the one who always has to get your way. This is the image that James is using of the tongue. All the other body parts get together to form the body, and the tongue steps forward and says, I'm in charge. That's the first way in which it utterly can destroy unity and cause this fire to run rampant in terms of injustice. Number two, it is staining the whole body. Same word for body that is used elsewhere in this, where it talks about guiding their whole bodies of the horses. Likewise, the body of the person is also guided, not by the bit, but by the tongue. The whole body, inside and out. That's why he says whole. He means your outer man and your inner man. You see, the ancient world, they understood your two parts, body and spirit. And that tongue controls both. So it sets itself up as the boss... It controls the whole body, number three, and setting on fire the entire course of nature. It ignites all of nature. Everything in your universe is set on fire by your tongue. Everything in your world becomes one massive conflagration because of what comes out of your mouth. What a heavy statement. I know that it would take you no time at all to list out ten people whose lives, marriages, careers, reputations have been destroyed because of one little thing that they have said. Some people are only known on this planet because of one little thing they said we're moving into another one of those political cycles where somewhere along the line, mark my words, some politician will make some gaffe. He'll say something or she'll say something, and for the rest of the campaign, every single time they're mentioned, someone will refer to the gaffe. One statement. Or there will be another situation where there's a hot mic that they weren't expecting, and they will say something rather colorful into it. Now, in the old days, if you said something horrible, something disgusting, It was enough to end your campaign. That's obviously not the case anymore. But the reality is their credibility, though it probably was in tatters anyway, is completely shot then in the eyes of those who might otherwise care. The tongue has that ability. So it sets itself up as the boss. It stains and pollutes the entire body inside and out. It sets on fire your entire world as it were. And notice, number four, it is set on fire by Gehenna. I want you to have Gehenna in your translation because hell is not the right word. Hell describes the place where people who have died without Christ go until the final judgment when they, the demons, and hell are all thrown into the lake of fire where there is eternal torment. Gehenna was the town garbage dump outside Jerusalem where people would bring all of their waste. And it was well known to the people in James's day, because when you said Gehenna, what you would think about was fire and maggots. That's why it says in the scriptures, it's where the fire never dies and the worm never ceases. It's a perpetual state of maggot-filled trash and fire. And so what we're talking about here is that the tongue is set afire by some maggot-filled, fiery garbage dump. And that is why so many times in the Bible, people talk about what comes out of somebody's mouth as being like that of an open grave. It's critical to understand where this fire comes from, because there's a good fire. Good fire came down from heaven. It was a way in which the Holy Spirit was manifest. At Pentecost, a good fire came down. the Lord talks about how fire can be used in a very good way, a purging way. It's not that kind of fire. This isn't the fire that comes from above. This is the fire that comes up from below. This is the fire of hell, as it were. In this case, reference to a specific geographic location that everybody would have understood. It's a very vivid, powerful illustration. You say, well, I'm glad that couldn't possibly affect somebody who otherwise loves Christ. And I would tell you that's a false assumption. If you go back into Matthew chapter 16, it is when Peter goes, and he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him, and Jesus says to him, get thee behind me. Who? Satan. Satan. Who had lit the fire in the tongue of Peter at that moment? It was the very adversary of Christ. I think Peter meant, well... It's probably not wise to rebuke the Son of God. You're probably on the verge of making a mistake there, I would think. But, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume he meant, well, what he said, what came out of his mouth, was something that was directly instrumental from Satan himself. And Jesus identified it as such. That's the power of this tongue. So, just to recap, why is it that it's so important? Why is it a world of injustice? It sets itself up as the first. It stains the entire man inside and out. It's set on fire, the entire world you inhabit, and it is set on fire by Gehenna itself from the worst of the polluted areas of the world. Verse 7, 4, and here's the conclusion. All nature, both beasts and birds, both creeping things and sea creatures, are subdued and have been subdued by the nature of human beings. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Everything else is to come under the subjection of men and women. God created men and women, male and female, together to bear his image. And then, once he had done that, he is very clear. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, male and female, together, equally, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the, air, uh, birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's rather comprehensive. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created mankind, male and female. He created them individually in his image. And God blessed them together. And God said to them together, "'Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth.'" And James goes back to Genesis and he picks this up and he says, yep, they have dominion over every living thing and over the earth itself. The only thing that seems to have slipped out of their control is their own tongues. Verse 8, but, moreover, you could translate it, no human being is able to subdue the tongue. Wow. You can subdue a dinosaur but you can't subdue your own tongue. Amazing. You can subdue the world, but you can't subdue your tongue. Now, I confess, because I was going to be preaching on this today, I was extra careful this week. And it was amazing to me how often I had to stop from saying something and what I was thinking. And sometimes what I did say and some of the things I said about other people. The tongue alone will bring all the conviction you need To go back to the Lord and continually ask for His cleansing forgiveness. No one can subdue it. And the reason why I say here wise thinking is because even if you had your tongue cut out or your mouth wired shut, you would still be able to communicate through your thoughts. It's what you're thinking, what goes on in your mind. Even if no words come out of your mouth, the tongue here is representative of that ongoing process inside of you that is generating these thoughts. It says it stains, remember, both the inner and outer man. So even that inner man is defiled by what goes on with those thoughts. No one can subdue the tongue. It is an unstable evil. You know how there are stable elements and unstable elements? There are things that have to be transported very carefully and things that you don't need to worry about. It's a very unstable element. It blows up very easily. And it's full of deadly poison common theme. We'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 3, Romans 3, verse 13, quoting the old covenant, the poison of asps is under their lips. Poison that the mouth can speak. And then he says most vividly, verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. Incredible. With it we bless the Lord, we come together, we sing songs of praise to him. We even preach the gospel, and with that very same mouth, we curse people. The word curse is the same one used in Luke and in Mark when Jesus cursed the fig tree. We pronounce it death. We wish it dead. And so he ends here, this section, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be Each section has this reference to my brothers and sisters. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 1. We see it here in chapter 3, verse 10, summarizing this one. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. Again, only here in the New Testament, it means this is intrinsically not right. Everything that has been said as a correction in the New Testament, it's the only place in the New Testament where this particular word is used ought, and it's intrinsically wrong. This ought not to be. It's absolutely wrong. So what's the answer? Well, look at verses 11 through 18, and this is where it comes down to us. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? He says if it does, you're going to know it. If you take a cup of salt water, and you put some fresh water in it, and you drank it, you wouldn't know there was any fresh water in it. But if you took a cup of fresh water and you poured a bunch of salt in it, or a little bit of salt in it, you'd know there was salt in it. That's his his point. When you mix these, it's obvious. And he says there's no way that a good spring that you're going to drink from could have any salt in it. Likewise, verse 12, can a fig tree, again, my brothers and sisters, his third admonition to the body, can a fig tree bear olives or a Grapevine produce figs. He's mixing up all his imagery and metaphors here. He's just making a point that everything bears its own kind of fruit. Likewise, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the case over and over again in the teachings of our Lord. He was clearly stating that. Verse 13. So, who is wise and understanding among you? Now let's get down to the bottom line. You want to be wise? If wisdom is what you're pursuing. Is wisdom what you need? Wisdom is how you end up controlling your tongue. Verse 13, wisdom is how you control your tongue. Who is wise among you? Who understands? Who aspires to this? That's a good encouragement, isn't it? This isn't heavy-duty kind of law trying to burden you with obligations you can't carry out. No, this is how you want to live in response to the Lord humble gratitude for what he's done. You say, I want to know how, because man, I can sense this. Even though I'm born again, I know this tongue. Wow, it is hard to control. I want to be wise. I, I want to know. I want to be like the Lord. I'm so grateful that in every way that I failed, he succeeded. That every time I boast of great things about myself, I can be reminded that he never boasted of anything except that which made him a teacher par excellence. Par excellence. He says, if you want to understand, it's this simple. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. How are those works manifest? Those necessary works as part of being a new creature? It's in meekness of wisdom. But, and here's the great contrast. If you have bitter jealousy, literally a boiling over. If you you have a bitter boiling over and selfish ambition The kind of ambition here that leads to strife and disputes. If that is what's in your heart, in your mind, then there is no way that you can honor the Lord. You know, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, it's going to be mentioned again in a little while. These are the hallmarks of somebody who cannot control their mind and cannot control their tongue. He says here that your hearts are literally your minds, the center of your being. If this is where bitterness resides, if this is where selfishness resides then do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't be a teacher. Don't go around trying to instruct others in God's word if your own heart, if your own mind is filled with this boiling over zealous jealousy and this selfish ambition that causes strife and disputes. We're going to find out in James chapter 4 that there was a lot of division, a lot of strife in that church, and it all boils down to those We use their words in an ungodly way. You know, God hates it when we use our words to stir up trouble or to lie or to bear false witness or to separate brothers and sisters in Christ. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says it. Proverbs, in fact, is filled with examples. Proverbs 21, 23, 22, 10, 26, 20. These are all Proverbs that make it clear that if you want to know where strife and division and fighting and jealousy... Come from, look to the person who is heaping on the logs of slander and gossip. Listen, brothers and sisters, to be intensely practical with you here, and I I mean this as a way to just come alongside you and say, let's acknowledge the crazy world that we live in, I just need to ask, you. I mean, is your tongue a torch? I mean, are you offended that I would even ask that? Are you the person who, who is, you know, so set in your ways that you think, no, I never do anything wrong with my tongue. Would you allow us to, like, replay the audio and the video of everything that you've said this week? I mean, ask yourself, like, how much time do you spend in just kind of idle chatter on the phone or talking to somebody else or in our day and age, posting stuff on some site? How much of your life could really be distinguished is nothing more than propagating and then perpetuating complaining and gossip and the swapping of stories and the questioning of what other people are doing. How how many of you have an unhealthy interest in what other people are doing and how many of you have an unhealthy desire to have other people have an interest in what you're doing? Are you engaged in some virtual form of this just by scrolling and scanning and scrutinizing social media so that you can compare yourself or satisfy the shallow conceit of those who medicate their own insecurity by basking in the unwarranted attention of others? Are you connecting with people just so you can be the bearer of news and tales? Remember, Proverbs doesn't just say that liars lie. Proverbs say that listeners of liars lie. You're indicted for just listening to liars, talebearers, gossips. Have you neglected your work, your children, your spouse, your Lord in favor of going house to house and talk to talk and never close the day with anything profitable accomplished? I mean, these are questions we need to ask ourselves, especially in light of everything James has been saying. Have you set fire to the reputation of people you don't even really know? Are you suffering the corrosive effects of the guilt that comes from decades of just idle chatter in exchange for words of life? James is serious with these believers. He's not messing around, as we've said many times before. And so he leans back on his foot and Squares up for one final shot. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It's not eternal. It's the same word in John 3.16 for eternal life. It really just means life from above. This is not what comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Are we prepared to accept the reality that some of the words we use are demonic? He says that's what's happening. It's not from above. It's earthly. It's from here. It's about here. It's about this stuff. It's unspiritual. It comes from the devil himself. Because, verse 16, just to play off what he said earlier where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you want to know where disorder comes from? You want to know where vile practices come from? It comes from the jealousy and the selfishness that inhabits the hearts of people who allow their mind to dwell on the things that are set alight by the fire of hell. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and without hypocrisy. I don't need to go into each and every one of those and define them for you. It's pretty evident from reading them. You know what these are. This is what defines the person. There is a moral purity. There is just that sense of a peacefulness, a gentleness. You can can talk to them. They have a general disposition towards what is merciful, what what is good and fruitful. They don't pick sides. They're not hypocrites saying one thing to one person, one thing to somebody else. And as a result... They bring the peace that we all desire. Verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness. The whole point of this part of the epistle. The fruit of wisdom, true religion. What is it? The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just think about the metaphor there. You want peace. So what you have to do is you have to sow it. The fruit of righteousness begins as a seed. That seed is sown in peace. And that seed, when it becomes a tree, it produces this beautiful fruit of what's described in verse 17. Isn't it wonderful to know that our Lord and Savior, whose righteousness we possess, never once had an evil thought or said an evil word? He is the only good tree. He is the only one who bore good fruit. He is the only one who subdued his tongue. He is the only one who is able to fulfill all of these commands perfectly and did it perfectly. And while James is very blunt and direct in what he calls the church too, it is nothing more than humble, thankful obedience to our Lord that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be like him. And if we are, and if he chooses by his kind grace to allow us to be successful in that regard, what a change it'll make in your life, in your marriage, in your home, and in this church. And we have a whole week before we get to chapter four, where we see that everything breaks loose when you don't do this. So we've got a couple of weeks to work on this. So by the time I get to chapter four, I can say, I can't relate to anything James is saying because there is nothing but peace and harmony and joy in our church. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and as we prepare now to turn our attention to the Lord's table and to receive it as the reminder of what you've done for us in Christ. Oh God, I just pray that we would be convicted by what we've heard today, not because of anything I've said, but because of what your word so clearly says. We thank you for the hope that's in it, because we can all relate to the conviction that comes from thinking about the words we say and the thoughts we think, but What a a wonderful way to end the chapter by reminding us that this wisdom mentioned over and over again is available to those who live humble lives of submission to your truth. That we are able, though imperfectly, to to subdue this wicked inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to us at regeneration. If there's one here who uh, has never put their faith in Christ, who really hasn't believed in any active sense may today be the day of salvation and for those who are children of God born from above may we go away from here encouraged lifted up knowing that we are worse in your eyes than we could possibly imagine but we are also more loved more accepted more forgiven and more secure than we could ever imagine if we are in Christ for it's in his name we pray amen